My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about Wakefield Pool, the godfather of the gay porn genre. This isn't the first time we've ventured into pornography on this podcast. One of the reasons I find it interesting, uh, in addition to the fact that I just love watching fucking and sucking. Uh, is because it is, you know, the most abject of film genres. And uh, you don't get any more abject than gay porn, which even the amount of celebration, the the modest amount of celebration and cultural canonization that straight porn has achieved uh, has eluded gay porn. But I think Wakefield Pool is probably the most famous auteur, right? Oh, definitely. And you look at his movies and it's very clear why, because he approached them not specifically from the get-go as a purely, all right, let's just do this nuts and bolts. We're just going to give them what they want. We can make some money, you know, the loop way. But there was an intent of, all right, I'm going to try to be artistic with these and to find an audience that is even just beyond the people who would be just jerking off in the cinema. So imagine, folks, a movie comes out in the early 1970s. It's a hardcore pornographic film. Most of the audience who goes to see it will have never seen a hardcore pornographic film. It's advertised in the New York Times. It attracts audiences, not just of the Raincoat Brigade, but also of middle class and upper class uh, curiosity seekers. Celebrities see it. Angela Lansbury sees it. Wait, are you talking about Deep Throat, Will? Nope. I'm talking about the movie that came out one year before, Boys in the Sand, the movie that I guess you could sort of credit with, if not launching, then at least uh, putting some cracks in the egg that would uh, break apart to become porno chic. I think that metaphor is not so I thought you were going to say the film that obviously started the porno spoof name uh, wave. That's right. uh, Inspired by Boys in the Band, which uh, I don't even really know what Boys in the Band is. It's a William Friedkin film, and it was famous for being one of the first major theatrical films that dealt directly with the gay experience. But even with that milestone being hit, someone like Wakefield Pool supposedly saw the film and went, this is just, you know, how miserable it is to be a gay person. Why are there no movies that's just, you know, gay people having fun? And that was the main intent behind making Boys in the Sand. The other oft-repeated part of Wakefield Poole's origin story is that sometime early in 1971, him and some friends went to see uh, a gay porn film called Highway Hustler, a one-day wonder. Uh, Supposedly, I I searched for it this week hoping to find it, but I didn't. Supposedly an unpleasant and poorly made film. And Wakefield Poole asked, why doesn't anybody make a good porno movie? A porno movie that's fun and positive and makes sex look nice and that people wouldn't be ashamed to go and see. And so that summer, he and a couple of friends did just that in their uh, Fire Island vacation. And the film itself is... You know, base porno kind of stuff. It's a guy, very handsome, lounging on the beach and just, you know, dreaming about all the men he could fuck and suck and all that other fun stuff. Yes. Uh, so one of the challenges of talking about Wakefield Pool is I'll quote uh, a caption that begins his 1977 film, Take One. The caption says, warning. For your enjoyment, do not try to understand this film. There is nothing here to understand. It is only real people doing real things, real spelled R-E-E-L, and making them real together. 
uh, which is very, very profound uh, sounding, but uh, it's true. I think a lot of the pleasure of Wakefield Pool's films is uh, right there on the surface. Man, you're really dodging around the point that uh, neither me or you uh, are gay. <laughs> so this are films that are not meant for they're, us. They're not meant for us. Although, boy, uh, did, did I watch a fair amount of gay porn this week? I saw four Wakefield Pool movies, a number of his shorts. The interesting thing about Wakefield Pool, too, is that pornography, the porno chic years, only account amount to i guess a chapter of his long life and career we both watched a recent documentary about him called i always said yes the many lives of wakefield pool i also uh, took a look at his autobiography uh, called dirty pool uh, and i was surprised in reading his autobiography how little of it was actually about his filmmaking most of it frankly was about his various love affairs which I don't know. Got a little, got a little tiresome to me after a while. What I mean, you can enjoy Burt Ward's book about his love affairs. Why can't you enjoy Wakefield? Pools? That's a good question. I'm gonna have to, you know, sit myself on a therapist's couch and figure out why that is. But. For uh, many years, Wakefield Poole was primarily a Broadway artist. He was a choreographer, director, sometimes actor in many productions, worked with many of the leading lights of Broadway, not necessarily an A-list. He didn't quite make it to the top of his profession, I don't think, but he was certainly in there for a long time. Yeah, you know, he got the work, he worked the chorus line, but he was never the star of any of the productions. But, you know, he was very tapped in to what was going on around that time, like, especially when once he started making his movies and started hanging out with all of the, you know, underground art scene people like Andy Warhol. I get the sense that he's a bit of a name dropper. You know, I say that with affection in the documentary, you know, he'll occasionally talk about, oh, yeah. And then Leonard Bernstein was there and, uh, <laughs> and oh, and Harvey Milk leaned over to me and said, you know, a, a little bit of that. But hey, I guess if I knew those people, I would probably drop their names, too. And a lot of those people just aren't around anymore. And Wakefield Pool still is. So, you know, he's keeping their memory alive by sharing the fact that he rubbed shoulders with all these famous people. Vinegar Syndrome has put out a number of Wakefield Poole's movies on DVD, and they're loaded with extras, you know, interviews and short films. I found the short films quite interesting. There's one called Andy, which he showed uh, before the first public screening of Boys in the Sand. It might have been a private screening, actually. It was for, like, New York tastemakers. And... The title, Andy, presented with no context, people thought, oh, this is going to be a solo jerk-off movie with some guy called Andy. But then it opens, <laughs> and actually it's 10 minutes that's just documenting an exhibition of Andy Warhol's paintings at the Whitney Museum. You know, you see this, you see a bunch of soup cans, and you see a bunch of uh, Liz Taylor portraits and this and that. Didn't Wakefield Poole give it as a present to Andy Warhol for Andy Warhol's birthday? He did, which I find unfathomable. It's strange. Like, if I were Andy Warhol, would I want, like, a film reel that just had my paintings in it? I don't know. Maybe it would be nice to have my Whitney Museum exhibit captured on film. Uh, but anyway, I, th I think if I were to psychoanalyze Wakefield Poole, I think presenting that movie at the beginning of a public screening of Boys in the Sand is probably a way of saying, remember, I'm part of the New York intelligentsia. I'm part of the art scene. This mm. is not just an ordinary, uh, shitty gay porn film. This is epochal because uh, I'm, I'm in that Warhol world. You would know this better than me. Before stuff like Deep Throat, 
like pornography was mostly uh, kept to very short things so the person could just, you know, do their pleasure and then be done with it, which, like you said, resulted in one day wonders that were often shot in one grungy room with no lighting, the barest, you know, threads of a story. Just because it had one purpose and one purpose only. Yeah, I had a really good time watching Boys in the Sand, actually. It's a pleasant film. Yeah, in addition to all the, you know, sex in it. It's set on Fire Island during the summer, and there are so many parts of it in between the sex that are just Casey Donovan, the blonde stud who is the star of the film. You know, running along the beach uh, with a big dog. Oh, man, that fluffy dog. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you love that dog? And <laughs> What a chunky boy. There's a montage where he's just uh, swimming in a pool. I guess I'll give a quick rundown of what Boys in the Sand is about. More than the, I did like a few minutes ago. <laughs> well, I don't think you mentioned that there are three segments, which I, I think is also probably a savvy move because Wakefield Pool and his producing partner would often like cut it up into eight millimeter reels that could be sold in the um in a mail order market oh yeah that's where they made all their money they were very clear about that because nobody had a film like that that drew so much attention and also delivered the goods so the first segment uh there's a guy on the beach and he's looking out at the water and then emerging like an adonis or like ursula andress and dr no from the water is casey donovan totally naked cock resplendent and he comes on the beach and, you know, they, they start doing their thing and then they go to the forest and they start doing their thing. And, you know, they have dick rings and, and this and that. It's all artfully shot. And we should point out that the entire film features no dialogue. It's all classical music running throughout. Yeah, because, I mean, it is an amateur production, right? Like, I think aside from the producer and Wakefield Pool, I, I think there was no crew. It was basically just a home movie. But it's a very nicely shot home movie. It's a very nicely edited home movie. Um, the second segment begins with that montage of Casey Donovan frolicking around Fire Island. And there's like, there's this montage of just him swimming and playing in the pool. There's an arty montage to show time passing. There's like a calendar that's turning or burning up. In the second segment, I should mention that he puts like a pill of some kind in the pool. And then from that pill emerges uh, a stud. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have sex next to the pool. And then the third segment is at this uh, beautiful house, you know, like a summer home where uh, Casey Donovan is walking around and he he imagines that a black handyman comes both ways. Yes, but both ways. And he pleasures himself with a dildo, too. Uh, this is truth in reporting, folks. This is this is journalism. Uh, I thought one of the things the movie did was capture, like, the feeling of being at a cottage or being in a nice, like, summer resort town on a lazy day. A nice sunbaked day. The whole film is bathed in those orange tones that let you know, like, eh, there's nothing to worry about. There's no drama here. It's just, you know, a fun time. And I think when Deep Throat came out, it was perceived as being you know one of one of the best or, or maybe the best of its genre up to that point just because it had a story and because it had sound and it was sort of semi-professionally put together but the films of gerard damiano are so like grungy and gross and just miserable as well you get the sense that a lot of pornographers when they're trying to do their job and be serious that often translates to like miserableness that permeates the entire production mostly because what's on set and also you know as a dramatist they're like oh well we need to be dark 
to you know make an impact in the audience. And you don't get that from Boys in the Sand. You just get like a bunch of guys doing their thing. Also, Gerard Damiano was a Catholic and seems to have had a complicated relationship with sex. You, you see that, I think, in a lot of the kind of, you know, straight hetero porn movies. It's not so much present in Wakefield Pool's movies. The, the Wakefield Pool's movies are very sex positive. And just judging by his autobiography and his book, he seems to have had uh, an uncomplicated relationship with his sexuality. And his second film is even more into the artier territory, Bijou, which came out a couple of years after Boys in the Sand. Now, Bijou is very structurally similar in the sense that there's no real dialogue. It's all kind of music that goes throughout. But this one has a difference of being extra arty and having a protagonist with a huge penis. Huge! Didn't your jaw just hit the floor <laughs> yeah. when, when he unzipped his pants? I mean, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. <laughs> well, you know, the more I looked at it, the more I was like, oh, that thing ain't getting erect, John Holmes style, because it's too big. Not enough blood can flow into that monster. You're right. He's a, he's a shower, not a grower, as they say. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the story, the loose story, is about a construction worker, uh, and the opening scenes are shot, like, on the fly, on the on the mean streets of new york clearly just wakefield pool with a camera following this guy around uh he leaves his humdrum job goes to his humdrum apartment on the way to his apartment he sees a woman get hit by a car so there's that kind of traumatic incident that i guess i guess is an inciting incident well he steals her purse and then runs away from the scene he's in his shitty apartment uh, which looks a little bit like Miss Jones's apartment in The Devil and Miss Jones. Yeah, right before she commits suicide. Uh, he doesn't commit suicide, though. He masturbates in the shower. Uh, but then he finds a an invitation to a place called Bijou. Uh, he finds that in her purse, right? Yeah, the purse he stole. And he wonders, oh, what is this? And it's in a second floor apartment somewhere. He wanders in and he finds himself in this uh, strange, mysterious, sexual wonderland. There's actually no no sex for the first third or so of this movie, unless you count the masturbation scene. It's like a weird slow build, and it reminded me that like porn at this time, it, this was still 1972, and the rules hadn't been set yet. Yeah, so it's like, I don't know the exact rules, but isn't it like you need a certain amount of sex scenes by this point, and you need this and that, like this position, and those just kind of, you know, hardened as time went on. Yeah, because theater owners just wouldn't take the movies if they didn't conform to those rules. Uh, but this one doesn't have that. It's a slow build. I'm, I'm not quite sure how to describe the, the mood of the movie. Like, one of the things I like about it is it's visionary, but it also feels really cheap and handmade. Like when the protagonist goes to the bijou and enters this black void, there's a little voice in your head that's like, <laughs> that's Poole's apartment. And look at all these fun special effects. Like at one point, there's a big monolith he touches. And you know, that's just a forced perspective shot. It's like a little thing and the guy's pushed back to make it look giant. Yeah, there's a certain Michelle Gondry quality to it, isn't there? It also feels a lot like a Kenneth Anger movie like um, uh, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome where it's this weird like pseudo mystical um, you know a lot of lot of optical effects and a lot of like uh, weird editing sorry that th this is very high level film criticism you're hearing right now we weird optical effects and editing like it takes itself seriously like Wakefield Poole knows that this will be watched by his artist friends and that it will be judged on those merits so he's going all in when it comes to this kind of stuff and I think it succeeds I think it really does 
cast a strange spell. Did you watch the film that he made after this, The Bible? Or Wakefield Pools The Bible? Yes, I did. Did you? I did. And what's interesting is I can understand it being his attempt at mainstream success, but it takes that kind of like episodic structure. And while it has very noble goals, the idea that it's going to be, you know, telling the Bible but from the women's perspective, the women who are demonized in the text here are given motivation on why they do what they do. But it's also like feature length, but you, you feel it doesn't have enough going on there to justify its length. Even though that Poole talks about like he put everything that he had into this production, hoping that it would break through. Yeah, Bible exclamation mark is a, is a it's a really weird movie because it, it was made for no one, you know? Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he says in his DVD introduction that, uh, I mean, the movie has almost no dialogue. I think it has just one line of dialogue. And he said that he wanted it to have some of the power that a silent movie would have. Like having the pace of an early silent movie where you're just kind of sitting there and watching these images and, yeah, letting the images wash over you. So the first segment is Adam and Eve, and a lot of it is like Adam just like wandering around endlessly just climbing up a mountain just like what is going to get to the top of that mountain and it was hard for me not to look at my phone during that the the second segment Bathsheba with Georgina Spelvin is is a uh, kind of funny and and you know the third one uh, which is Samson and Delilah is kind of a like pseudo Alejandro Jodorowsky thing yeah I like that one but they're all pretty slow and What's what's weird about it, too, is, yeah, it's a softcore movie, and he's he's lingering and looking at the bodies of both women and men. So, like, there's no hardcore sex, and it's bisexual. So, basically, it had no audience. Oh, and it's glacially paced. You'd think that, you know, if there was hardcore sequences in it, the audience would go, oh, okay, this is what I actually came for. These are, like, my set pieces. But because it doesn't have any, there's almost, like, an absence, because it's structured as if... Those are supposed to be the payoffs. I actually think it would benefit from some, from some hardcore stuff, don't you think? Like, because in the other movies, in Bijou, there's a tension and release. Well, here, it's kind of, like you said, neither fish nor fowl. It's for no one. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad it exists. It's very strange. After Bible, I think his ambitions scaled back a little bit. The first movie he made after that was something called Moving, which returned to his structure of like three silent segments, which could be chopped up and sold uh, as eight millimeter reels to anywhere that wasn't a major city, basically, in the mail. And all I know about Moving is that uh, it has a lot of fisting in it. Yeah, isn't like the poster of the image just like a fist? Yeah, and apparently it's pretty extreme fisting too. So I didn't watch that one. Uh, I did watch Take One, which is a movie he made in 1977 in San Francisco where he relocated. And uh, Take One was kind of interesting. It was like uh, a, a pseudo documentary slash like dreamy fantasy film where Wakefield Poole is in it and it's him interviewing a number of his friends about their sexual fantasies and then they enact those fantasies again with very strange optical effects and heavy lighting so like there's a guy in it who says 
oh, you know, I've always I've always loved my car. And the fantasy segment is him like fucking his own car. Uh, I'm not sure how to describe how he does that. Uh, you know what? I think the listeners probably have a few ideas. So so he's doing that. And, you know, there, there's heavy music and there's a lot of like red lighting. And he's also doing it like in front of these screens that have like strange images on them. A lot of it is set at this movie theater, this San Francisco adult movie theater, which I think Wakefield Poole wanted to pay tribute to that theater as as a gay space, basically. So there's an extensive glory hole orgy towards the end in one of the bathrooms. And seeing that made me think about the fact that a lot of like one of the things these movies do is document uh gay life at the time in a way like adult movie theaters were once very central spaces of gay life i don't know if you've ever uh, read or heard about samuel delaney's book times square red times square blue um I, I highly recommend it on that topic but he was he was talking about how uh delaney always talked about how he liked the adult movie theaters as gay cruising grounds because they sort of like transcended class you know, people from all classes would 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 go there. Uh, I'm not doing his argument justice. But what you say is like important because Wakefield Pool was documenting this stuff in the way that almost nobody else was. The idea of like, oh, you know, this is good, this is normal, people are doing this, as opposed to like, ah, oh, this is gross and it's skeezy. When you talk about, um, you know, movie theaters as kind of like gay hubs. It's often followed by, yeah, and you'd get knifed in the back if you weren't watching yourself, right? Which was not always the case for all of these people who would just live their lives. And, the, you know, these movies are valuable as historic documents because in the Wakefield Pool documentary we watched, it climaxes with uh, Pool visiting this film festival uh, on Fire Island. Uh, the Fire Island Film Festival was going to show Boys in the Sand for its 40th anniversary, I think. But the corporate sponsors of the festival objected. And so instead, the festival had to do a like an unofficial screening. That's insane to me. Like, come on. The film is obviously such an important cultural artifact. And I'm sure the corporate sponsors were like, pornography, no thank you. Yeah, and it just makes you think about like what is acceptable history? What is acceptable film history? Who are the people who get to shape uh, film history and and what are their interests? I read an interesting article on IndieWire by a guy called Trim, Tr- uh, Jim Tashinsky from 2014. Yeah, he was the director of the documentary. Oh, was he? Okay, I didn't realize that. Um, well, he, he writes in the article, and I'm just going to quote a little bit of it. There is an effort among LGBT cultural gatekeepers to desexualize our history. They want our pioneers to be G or PG rated because they want LGBT people to be seen as just like everyone else parents, husbands, wives, and respectable members of society. The sexual parts of LGBT history make most heterosexuals uncomfortable. They even make many LGBT people uncomfortable. So it's best that these things are swept under the rug and forgotten. And, you know, in a lot of accounts of gay film history, when when people talk about the pioneers of queer cinema, they wouldn't necessarily talk about Wakefield Pool. Like, they might talk about him, but but like he would be the only gay porn director who would get any mention. If you look at the gay cinema page on Wikipedia, his name does not appear in that entry. You have to go to gay pornography to find his name. And I mean, that's incredible because he had a gay porn film in 1971. That, that was a crossover hit! It was advertised in the New York Times. Angela Lansbury went to see it. You know what? <laughs> I mean, You're talking about influencers. I'm glad us two white straight guys can be the ones that can bring this to a new audience. Yeah, we're saving film history, one director at a time. 
So, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have some letters. You can email us, as per usual, at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. So our first letter is from Alan Bancroft, and it goes, Howdy, fellas. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now. It really helps dull the pain of work. I came for the Guy Madden, Darling of Winnipeg episode, and have stuck around for the pleasant mix of serious director figures and people like Polly Shore. Man, I forgot we had done Polly Shore. Oh, I didn't forget. <laughs> that may be one of the like few episodes where me and you are like, we see no value in this person. We don't know why they're popular or were popular for that brief moment in time. Definitely when we did the Polly Shore episode, I had this feeling of, why are we digging up this guy just to bury him all over again? <laughs> We picked him because he was so abject, too, because nobody likes Pauly Shore. And, like, he had made a movie about himself, and I was like, what is there to discover that no serious academic like us had taken the time to explore? The letter continues, I'm a graduate student at the University of Victoria who writes on Soviet cinema. I spent too much time watching stuff like... Vertov's Kino Pravda and Kino Nadalia newsreels, or... Podovkin's mother, and it's high time someone else that isn't from a post-Soviet state watched these types of films. I'd love if you two did an episode on Soviet cinema. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking you to do another Film Studies 101 episode like Flaherty or watching Battleship Potemkin. And I am aware you've talked a little bit about Kalidazov and Tarkovsky in your long take episode. I'm talking some influential deep cuts along the lines of Doshvenko, without whom he wouldn't have Pavarzhanov or Ukrainian poetic cinema. Am I the only person who would enjoy or even listen to this episode? Maybe, but I like to hope that one day I'll have someone to talk about these movies that isn't the faculty in my department. Cheers, Alan. Well, Alan, we'll uh, fulfill one of your requests, but it ain't going to be a deep cut. Because there's a reason, probably, that me and Will have not talked about that much Russian cinema. Because we're not experts in it? <laughs> I wouldn't say that we're probably just, you know, uh, surface level aware of it. Oh, yeah, I've seen Battleship Potemkin. You yeah, know. you sat in the um, film 101 screening with like 700 other people who slowly, as the movie plays, get up and leave, shining the light on the screen every time that door opens. Oh, man. Yeah, film 101 is just a terrible way to watch movies. But... Why don't we do next week, Potovkin? Is that how you say his name? Podovkin, uh, I think. Podovkin, there you go. The director of Mother? Uh, yes, I would love to. There's a new Blu-ray out from Flickr Alley. These films, like even Storm Over Asia, for a long time were only available in real crummy DVD transfer. So I'm excited to crack that bad boy open and to watch them in uh, the nicest quality available. And then we'll discuss... Probably the most surface level details about the subject. Um, yeah, probably. But I mean, I got to tell you, we, you know, Wakefield Pool one week, Padovkin the next week. I mean, nobody beats this podcast. We are still on the cutting edge. Nobody. It's like, uh, you know, all about curation and looking at that list and going, wow, I can't believe these subjects are one after the other. I'm not going to listen to them. I'm going to wait for somebody else like Wesley Snipes or something like that. <laughs> so as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And what are we doing this week on our Patreon, Will? Uh, we haven't recorded it yet, so I'm not quite sure how it's going to turn out. But we will be talking about the uh, Klaus Kinski classic Vampire in Venice, also known as Nosferatu in Venice. Because we have a rule here. If the Patreon episode is bad, we'll warn you at the beginning and go, it's not worth listening to this Patreon episode. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet because we're always good. But, you know, we just want to let people know. To listen to us talk about it, $5 a month. Check it out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club oh we talked about what we we're doing last week so we already skipped that segment so until next week my name is justin the glue i'm will sloan thanks for listening
Hello, Justin here. Just want to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers who include Alex, Carlo, Felix, Jeremiah McDonald, Caleb Clements, Cody, and Jess Stiles. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do this without you. And as per usual, you can catch me on the Bay Street Video Podcast every week where me and Mark Hansen, the product manager at Bay Street Video, a Toronto institution, one of the few brick-and-mortar video stores still left standing, go through all of the new releases on Blu-ray and DVD. We talk about new films, we talk about old films that have been remastered, and we just laugh, we discover stuff, and we share our favorites. You can check that out by just searching The Bay Street Video Podcast in Google or whatever search engine that you use. So with that, we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Will, people are saying the theatrical experience is dead, but they're wrong because the drive-in is still going. That's right. I was just on Box Office Mojo, and uh, the number one movie at the box office this week is IFC Films Relic, uh, which has made over $800,000. All of it at drive-in movie theaters. That's right. IFC Films is rocking the box office dependably every week at drive-ins. So the drive-in is something that most people probably thought had been dead for three decades. But the truth is, they've been around since forever. Just not as many as there were in the heyday. I mean... Uh, for a few years, me and my partner Emily love going to the Oakville Five, which is actually three screens running simultaneously, and they do like double and triple bills every weekend. It was so much fun. There was a park. There was a like intermission. Let's all go to the lobby. The saltiest popcorn in the world, which is the best way movie popcorn is. Drive-ins are great. I mean, you just went to one recently, right? Yeah, well, I was in London, Ontario, a few weeks ago, and the Highland Cinema, which is. London, Ontario's independent movie theater. They have a, I think they show the movie Jaws annually. And this year they set it up with a screen behind the theater as a drive in setting in the parking lot, basically. You could drive in and watch Jaws, and you know, you did the whole bit. You tuned into the audio on your car radio. I was in a car with uh, several people, uh, none of us caught COVID. And I was in the back seat, so I saw the the bottom half of the screen. But if I if I leaned forward, I could see uh, most of the screen. Uh, drive-ins are made for uh, people that you turn your car around, you open the trunk, and then you sit back with pillows, and you got yourself your own indoor little movie theater. Ah, uh, well, yeah, there you go. Unfortunately, I did not have that luxury. But that said, what what I saw of Jaws, I really enjoyed it. It was only the second time in my life I'd seen it. Uh, I saw it once when I was a teenager, and I saw it just again at, at the drive-in. And I can imagine... What? That was the second time you saw Jaws? Yeah, no, seriously, only the second time. I remembered it very well. Uh, I think it's just because Jaws, like, it's obviously a great movie. It might even be his best movie. It never felt like a movie that, like... I don't know. I, always, I guess I always just felt like I got it, you know? I mean, the problem with drive-ins for me is I don't have a car, so I can't go to drive-ins. <laughs> but, you know, I can ride my bike. Hopefully they'll let me in. I'll have a little chair in the back. Lonely, you know, theater for one. And I wonder if drive-ins have policies if people, like, walk up or they're like, no, stay away. Well, you could, you know, camp out at the nearby hill and bring binoculars. <laughs> yeah. and then you can see a little bit of night call nurses. I, I mean, I was watching just a few days ago Bikini Drive-In. So I hope that's what's happening is that, like, you know, beautiful women are just, you know, having fundraisers to raise money as just trash plays on screen. 
One of the things I regret since COVID started is that probably for a couple of years, I won't be able to go to the Mahoning Drive-In, which me and Will have shared their programming. You've heard of this place, right, Will? Oh, yeah. They have amazing stuff. What's some of the stuff they've been All playing? on film. That's like the gimmick, too, is that they play everything on 35 millimeter, and their pals, just like Harry Guerrero, who owns a giant print collection. So they had like Godzilla-thon, where they just showed Godzilla movies. They did one weekend that was just like Exploitation Weekend. They showed Raiders of the Living Dead and Sam Sherman, the producer of all of Al Adamson's films, was there to do a Q&A. And I was like, ugh, that would have been so much fun to go to. But of course, it's too far. And I don't own a car, so can't do that. Yeah, somebody's got to build a drive-in in downtown Toronto. There is one. You need cars to go to it. But do you think that like outdoor screenings could become for a little while the only way that like you know, people experience movies as a group? Well, you know, I thought so, but downtown Toronto used to have a robust culture of outdoor movie screenings, and they were all... I mean, that was the worst. They were all (laughs) cancelled this summer, so I don't even get that. They were? Yeah. I live right by Christie Pitts, and they used to have, you know, the Christie Pitts Film Festival every year. But they don't want people to, like, sit together is the idea. If some people were daring and we're also millionaires they would set up some kind of like private drive-in that you didn't need a car to go to that you could just come and sit that you're socially distanced and you know you're just showing a movie outside all you need is a projector pizza cake do you ever see people on instagram who show that like them projecting movies on a screen in their backyard or, or that sort of thing. That always looks really oh, fun. Oh, yeah, I did that recently. Are you talking about the screening I had of Batman Forever with Peter Kowalski? Oh, I saw him log that on Letterboxd. I didn't realize yeah, he that... watched it. <laughs> uh, you know, I have a little portable projector. It doesn't need batteries or anything like that. It can run a whole movie. You don't need any power. All you need is a flat surface to shoot on. I am the rogue projectionist, just, you know, rolling through Toronto, looking for a backyard. None of my friends have one because, you know, we're all in our 30s and we don't own houses. I have a backyard. We could watch uh, Batman Forever here. I don't own this house, obviously, but but I have a backyard. Oh, you have a backyard yeah. you can use? We're definitely going to have to watch the movies. Oh. oh, let's do it. I haven't even seen you in person since February. Let's <laughs> Let's do this. All right, let's do it.